guys and pray I make it through without coughing all over you guys. We are about to find out. <clears throat> you know, I've been as we have been moving through this book of Romans and looking at what it is that God is calling of us, calling us to be, and also what He's done for us in Jesus Christ, and we get to this passage, which. As Evan just asked, what do I mean? What do we mean by more than conquerors? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this language of conquering, language of war, language of fighting, language of uh, being an army that we see not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament in light of our current cultural environment and social context. And I think that um, what's interesting and something to reflect on as we go through today is just, this is just kind of like something to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we're going through this, is that the Bible does talk about us being victors and conquerors and warriors and in a battle, right? And just to, as we step into this, you know, I think a lot of times today in our culture, we are, in the church is often, uh, there are those who would rile us up to be uh, aggressive fighters in in the world that we're in. And just to remember that the way of the cross, as, we, as we're going to see here, is not just something for the beginning of our faith, but for the whole of our faith. And I'm just sharing that as we start today, because we are in this moment where, you know, we've been, we've been talking about the, you know, last week, this big, massive event, this kind of watershed event of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We've been talking about and seeing in our culture, just especially over the last couple of years, this um, big movement of people who are becoming, I think, increasingly uh, angry and antagonistic towards one another in all different places, all different sides. And yet, as Christians, what does it look like to actually be the kind of conqueror that God has called us to be? And so as we jump into this, I just invite you to kind of keep that in the back. We'll come back to it a little bit. Um, but as we uh, get into this, you know, just remember the, the kind of conqueror that Jesus was. He was a conqueror who conquered by sacrificing himself uh, for others. He was a conqueror who, uh, you know, was not only powerful, as we sang about today, but also meek, uh, also humble. Um, so that's just a little... Again, encouragement as we jump into this. But please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We've been moving through the book of Romans, uh, I guess, most of this year now so far. And we've been looking at what Paul has to say and what the Holy Spirit ultimately has to say about being a person uh, in relationship with God and that it happens by faith. And as we come into our passage today, Romans 8.31, it just starts with this question. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? So let's take a moment to remember what the, these things are that he's referring to. And we don't have to go back too far. I mean, the general theme of Romans is that the righteous shall live by faith, right? And so Paul is saying, first of all, that to have a relationship with God, it can only be done through faith. It can never be done through works. It can never be done through your own obedience. No one is righteous. No one seeks God. Uh, no one has uh, lived up to the standard that God has set for us in terms of holiness or love or obedience. 
And so we all come to God equally uh, sinful and equally saved by grace through faith. But he also makes these two claims in the present section of Romans that we've been looking at. The first one is the very beginning of this section, Romans 5.1, where Paul says this, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the second is Romans 8, chapter 1. If you can read it, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so these two verses, these two claims that Paul is making, truth claims, these two uh, hope-filled assertions that Paul is making govern everything that he has been saying in all of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And here we come to the end of that section, and Paul's going to make his final um, argument or, or encouragement around these themes for you and for me. So why don't we jump in and read this together? So if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one of these nearby under a chair. You know, use your phone, tablet, whatever you've got going today. In Romans 8, starting in verse 31, it says... What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Let's just stop right there. We're going to pick up the rest of this chapter in a moment. But what do you notice about the language of that section, that paragraph where, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he talks about things like bringing charges, condemning, talks about interceding. What kind of language is that? What does that bring to mind for you? To me, it brings to mind court. This is legal language. And again, last week, we just talked about the Supreme Court ruling and and Dobbs versus Jackson Women of Health, women, Women's Health and how the huge impact that has. But I just want to note for you that as a believer in Christ, uh, to talk about the Supreme Court is a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? Right? If we're being, you know, if we're using the full name, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States, right? And that of the United States part is really important because the Supreme Court is not the Supreme Court. There is a court higher than that court, is there not? And who is on that court? Are there nine justices? No. How many are there? There's one. One justice. God is the Supreme Court. And he's the judge. If you want to use this language, he's the jury. And he's the executioner. And thank God that he is those three. Because he judges perfectly. And when God executes his judgments, he does it perfectly. And so what Paul is saying is like, look, guys. As you live this life, you're going to encounter, you're going to encounter this reality where you yourself will try to condemn you, and you also have an enemy who will try to condemn you. But he had just said a few verses ago, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So how can this be? 
And what Paul is doing, he's kind of like setting up the, the stage for this, this court battle and showing that God is the one who's going to make all of this work out for your good. For your good. Just like we read last week in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So he says, look, if God's for you, who can be against you? And he later answers that question, no one. Who can condemn you? No one. Now, who can condemn you? Who can, play, who can throw charges at you? And who will? I just kind of mentioned it already, but who's, who's our main adversary in this court battle? Satan, right? And what does Satan try to do? You know what Satan means? The accuser. We also talk about how Satan is a liar, but I want to tell you this. When Satan accuses you, many times he is not lying. Many times he's not lying. Many times he is, but not always. And you know, do you ever have those moments where you're, someone accuses you of something and you know it's not true, and you kind of, maybe you, you either get indignant uh, and say, oh, that didn't happen, I never did that. Or maybe you just kind of can, you know, throw it off because it's not a big deal. Like, oh, I know I didn't do that. Right. But what about when someone confronts you with something and you know you did it? That's a different story, isn't it? You know, it would be really uh, probably poor form, but I could probably just start listing sins today. And then each one of us would kind of have that little sting in different ones, right? And we'd be like, oh, that one, that's mine. Oh, yeah, that, I do that. Oh, that happened last week. Oh, this morning. Yeah, that happened this morning. Oh, I, I, yeah, I feel that one. And, you know, there's a sense in which when we come before God and our enemy throws these accusations at us, a lot of them stick. A lot of them stick. They're true. They're real. And I think as a believer, the appropriate thing to do is to admit it, acknowledge it, confess it, and repent of it. But you know, when you're already in court, it's often too late to say, I'm sorry, isn't it? Like by the time things get to the level where you're in front of a judge, Usually at that point, just an I'm sorry is not good enough. The char- you know, formal charges have been filed, right? And there you sit before the Lord of the universe, the God of creation, the holy, righteous uh, uh, Father, and Satan says to, to the Father, not to you, to the Father, he says, this one here, yeah, he, he's a liar. This one here, she's a gossip. I'm not going to get into that whole list, right? I just said it'd be bad form. But you can imagine the things that would come out of his mouth. And the beautiful thing here is that God doesn't say, oh, no, that never happened. That didn't happen. Oh, no, I know this one. She's great. She's perfect. Oh, I know this one. He's, he's really a... He's really uh, just a, a beautiful son of mine. No, he doesn't pretend these things didn't happen because God truly is just. He doesn't pretend they didn't happen, which is not only good because it preserves his character. It's also good because, in a sense, it preserves your character 
Because then when you hear the final judgment, you know that it's not based on a lie about who you are. Instead, what God does is he says, um, these things are true. And yet, who will condemn this child of mine? Who will condemn? Because Satan has the power to accuse you. But he doesn't have the power to condemn you. Because God is the Supreme Court. And here we see in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? No one. And Paul explains why it is that no one condemns. Jesus Christ who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So you can think of Satan as the prosecuting attorney. Jesus is the attorney for the defendant. Jesus is your defense attorney. He's the one interceding for you. He's the one who, you don't have to get up and explain yourself. He gets up and he explains for you. And again, he doesn't explain away what you've done. He explains what he's done. When you stand before the Lord and the accusations fly, and so many of them are true, what God does as the judge is he says to the accusing, you know, to the, to the uh, prosecutor, he says, uh, no, you see, Satan, here's the deal. This little one and I, we're at peace. And there's no condemnation for her. There's no condemnation for him. And Satan, I can just imagine, you can imagine those, one of those uh, dramatic courtroom scenes in a big legal a law movie. Satan, you know, probably throws his pad and says, no, that's not fair. There's no way <coughs> that you can be at peace with this one. There's no way that he or she cannot stand condemned. And I can just imagine God saying, well, uh, does, does the counsel for the defense have anything to say? And Jesus stands up and he pulls his sleeves back. Shows his scars. He says, uh, yes, judge, I've already paid the price for this one. I've already paid the penalty. Yes, yes, they were guilty, but they're guilty no longer because I took the guilt on myself. And guys, we in this country, you know, we're, we're ruled by law and we hate things like nepotism. But I'm telling you, if you're in the Supreme Court, you want the judge's son on your side of the courtroom. Right? Because when God looks at his son, the father looks at his son, and the son says, no, I've, I've already paid for that one. Then there's nothing left but to, in a sense, dismiss the case. Dismiss the case. It's already been paid. And to know that it wasn't just that Jesus did it, but that the father, you know, he was in on the whole scheme from the beginning. The Father invited him to do it. In fact, the Father technically told him to do it. Jesus was being obedient to the Father when he went to the cross. And so you have this scenario where the judge and the jury and the executioner is also the one who provided the defense. He's the one who gave Jesus, and he's also the one who paid the penalties. And here's the deal. Uh, I'm dropping the word. You can't appeal this court. There's no no appeal process because he's the actual Supreme Court. 
Now here's the thing. Why might we think why might we think that actually this isn't going to work for us? What are the things that happen in your life that make you start to wonder, am I really at peace with God? Does he really love me? Does Jesus love me that much for real? So much that I'll be forgiven of everything? What are the types of things that make us doubt this? Do you doubt it when you're out on Lake Winnipesaukee? Maybe on a sail, you just imagine, out on a sailboat, the wind's blowing, it's a perfect day, it's clear, it's, you know, the lake's like glass, and the wind's blowing, and you look over and your family's there, your friends are there, and then you know as soon as you get off that boat, there's going to be a campfire and a meal, and, you know, is that when you feel like, God doesn't love me? No. When do you feel like God doesn't love you? It's when things aren't going well. And things aren't going well takes a lot of, uh, there's a, that's a really broad category, isn't it? So, what do you think? What are, what are some of those things that, don't, that make you feel that way? Just go ahead, say them. Anyone? <laughs> when you're struggling with illness, and especially it seems like it's not stopping, and especially when it's been lasting a long time, and especially when there's a lot of pain associated with it and loss associated with it, and you think, Lord, if you love me, why am I still experiencing this sickness? What's another one? Grief. Lord, why did I lose this person or this thing or this situation? Why did you take that from me? If you love me, wouldn't you have not taken this from me? Wouldn't, wouldn't, I have, wouldn't this person not have died too soon? Wouldn't this um, what seem like a perfect situation not be taken from me? What's another one? Trauma. God, how could these things have happened to me? If you love me, why did you let this happen to me? Why was I abused, beaten, raped, you know, just the whole list, right? Abandoned. How could it have happened if you love me so much? I think there's at least one more really obvious one. When I'm just sinning and that condemnation feels heavy, and I think, Lord, how could you do this? I mean, how could you love me when I'm like this? And we get in this mind game where we're like, I'm so worthless, I'm so bad, that Jesus could love anyone else, but he certainly can't love me. Which is like a really interesting way of saying, I'm the greatest sinner that ever lived. Right? But we go to that place. Right? Well, I want to suggest to you that this is why Paul puts this passage in this place in Romans. Because what have we been talking about for the last three or four weeks? Suffering. Hardship. Persecution. And sin. Right? When we said all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, Paul meant all things. The Holy Spirit meant all things. We saw it in the text. We saw, you know, that uh, we will be co heirs with Christ if we share in his sufferings in order 
that we may also share in his glory. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. Creation groans awaiting, uh, awaiting for the time when we will be uh, brought into freedom and glory as children of God. And just as creation groans, we've been groaning as we await eagerly our adoption of sonships, the redemption of our bodies. And the Spirit groans for us and knows that we don't even know what to pray for. Sometimes we're praying to get out of the trouble. But God, in His wisdom, is praying to keep us in the trouble. And why all of this? Because God cares most, you know, of all the things God wants for you. God wants a lot of things for you. And I hear this, there's like, not an argument, but like this conflict that we have. It's like, God wants me to succeed in life. Yes, he does. God wants me to be healthy. Yes, he does. God doesn't want me to live in trauma. No, he doesn't. God doesn't want me to have this grief that's overwhelming and depressing me. Absolutely right. But more than all of that, God wants you to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And God, when he looks at the scale, we see these scales up here. When God puts suffering on the scale and he puts the glory that is being conformed to the image of Christ on the scale, it's so unbalanced that it's a no-brainer for the Lord. I'm going to choose your righteousness and your glory over your freedom from pain. And remember we said Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Jesus was made perfect through suffering. How much more must we be? If the perfect human being needed to suffer, how much more must we in order to be fully submitted and surrendered to the Lord of creation, the Lord of heaven? And so that's why Paul puts this right here. I think a lot of times we come to a passage like this and again, I don't knock it, but like, you know, you pull out your devotional and they give you this paragraph and you're like, oh, that's awesome. You know, I'm, we haven't gotten there yet, but I'm a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror. That's, being more than a conqueror sounds awesome. But what do conquerors all have in common? They had some massive enemy to conquer. They had some massive battle to fight. They had some moment where everything looked like it wasn't going to work out and then by the grace of God it did work out right if you don't have the dark stuff you don't get the light if you don't have the difficulty you don't get the victory and so Paul is saying here again the Holy Spirit is saying that we don't have to we don't have to worry that God doesn't love us just because we face hard things in fact, the, the initiation of the conversation about suffering was right there in Romans chapter 5 when he said, we're at peace with God. I'll just read it to you. It says, therefore, we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but not only, we also boast in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then Paul does this really kind of obnoxious thing. Okay? Can you believe me for a moment? Like, go with this. It's obnoxious. Like, don't, don't resist this idea. 
he quotes Psalm 44. Now, we read from Psalm 44 this morning, and I think, David, is it still over here? Do you still have this sheet over here? Because, um, there it is. I don't know why I didn't just turn to it in my Bible. <laughs> Psalm 44, we've heard with our ears, O God, what our fathers have told us, that what you did in their days and days long ago, with your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you love them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. And God, we make our boast all day long. And we praise your name forever. Now, that sounds like a really wonderful, conquering, victorious thing, right? Does anyone know what happens in the second half of Psalm 44? That's the first half. That's the fun half. Psalm 44 is one of the very few psalms. There's two of them, 22 and 44. Two psalms that then talk about horrendous things happening, and they do not end in hope. You know how Paul says, oh, I feel like my bones are being crushed. I'm being devoured by dogs. And, but in, Lord, in you, Lord, I put my trust, right? And he kind of ends on this up note. Well, this one, we don't get that. So look at verse 9. If you want to turn there, that's fine. I'll read it to you. All this good stuff happened, but all these great things that we've heard about, but now you have rejected and humbled us. This is verse 9. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep, and you scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because of the enemy who has bent on revenge. Now, why would God do this to his people? According to the Old Testament, why does God do this to his people? Did God promise that they were going to be kicked out of the land? He kind of did, right? Did he promise they were going to be defeated by their enemies? Did he promise they were going to be a byword among the nations? Through what cause? Disobedience. But read what the psalmist says. And again, inspired by the Holy Spirit. 17, all this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. You covered us over with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it since he knows the secrets of our hearts? The answer, by the way, is yes. Yet for your sake, here's our verse, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. 
Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust, our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love. But notice, no hope here of the typical David's, Davidic Psalms where he says, I know that you will save us. I trust that you, he just says, God, we're, we're struggling here. We need you. Where are you? For your sake, come help us. This psalm, I think, is an example in the Old Testament of what Paul is saying in the New Testament. He says, look, sufferings will come, and you won't even always know why they're there. But through Christ, we have peace with God. You know, we know the story of Israel. We know how this particular, we don't know when this psalm was written, but we know how the story ends. God brings them back to the land, and he sends his son Jesus to die for them and for us so that all of us can have a hope in a future where this kind of thing will never happen again. But as I read that, let yourself feel the weight. He talks about the shame. He talks about the pain. He talks about his disappointment, about his hurt. Feel it for a moment. You know, by the way, typically in the, in the devotional, they, you typically don't, like, you don't read this part, right? Like, do you ever read a devotional where it's like, hey, let's all be sad today. Read this passage from Psalm 44. Like, no, all these devotionals are encouragement, encouragement. But church, I'm telling you, you need to read these too because these are real. These are real too. This pain, this hurt, this shame, this guilt, it's real. And the Bible doesn't shy away from it. By the way, who else suffered for doing nothing wrong in the Bible? Job. Who else in the Old Testament? Joseph. Man, oh yeah. What did Joseph? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, we preached it and we're like, you know, he should have kept his dream to himself. He's probably kind of arrogant. But man, he didn't deserve to be thrown into slavery and put in prison and, you know, these things. He didn't earn those things. Who else? I think Abraham. Moses. Moses. I mean, the dude killed a guy, but, you know, like. Abel. And then who's, who in the New Testament suffers for not doing anything wrong? And Jesus, right? So if God treats his favored nation like this, and he treats his favorite people like this, and he even treats his son like this, who are we to think that he won't treat us like this? Even when he loves us, even when he has a plan for us, even when it's good. You know, Paul then goes on to say in Romans 9, if, <coughs> sorry, let's turn back there. He starts to list these things. He says, you know, after that passage, but, I mean, he, he lists these things. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall those separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? And guys, each one of those things on the list is one of the covenant curses in the Old Testament. 
God says, if you don't obey me, you're going to have trouble. If you don't obey me, you're going to have famine. If you don't obey me, you're going to have persecution. If you don't obey me, you're going to have hardship. If you don't obey me, the sword's going to come. If you don't obey me, you're going to be naked out in the wilderness. And here's the radical reality of Jesus Christ, is the things that God said once, that these are examples of me pouring my wrath out on you, are now examples of me pouring my love and grace out on you through Jesus Christ. The psalmist had every reason to write this, these words. Why? Why have you done this to us? We've been faithful. He had every right because he had every expectation that these things would only happen when he was turning away from God. But what Paul is letting us know is that even when you don't turn away from God, they can happen. And even when you do turn away from God and they happen, you still have the love of Christ. Jesus still loves you. So whatever the cause of the difficulty doesn't change the fact that Jesus loves you still. Now, big caveat here. If you're in him, if you live by faith, if you approach the Lord not on your works and merits, but on the merits of Jesus Christ, that's the message. And now we get our famous verse. We are more... I missed this. We are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Right? I'm going to, I don't want that yet. (laughs) Why are we more than conquerors? Because no matter what comes at us, we can overcome and endure because Jesus still loves us. Paul goes on to say, I am convinced, and I just want to take these, (coughs) just to emphasize these, I'm going to read this out of order. I am convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither death nor life will be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Now, we, we know life won't, right? But death won't. That means whether it's your death, your loved one's death, the death of Jesus. No death can keep you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For I am convinced that neither angels nor demons will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think we all, like, no one's worried about angels getting in the way of your relationship with God, right? Although that has happened historically. But what about demons? What about the things that demons do? And what do they do? Well, they do what their father does. They accuse, they attack, they steal, they destroy. But in all that, you can't be separated from the love of Christ Jesus. No matter what they bring at you. And I think, you know, I think some Christians get overly afraid of demonic. Like a sense of like, oh, I'm going to accidentally get... caught up in something that's going to keep me from God. 
and understand the, the caution, but at the end of the day, nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For I'm convinced that neither the present nor the future nor any powers will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, how could the present or the future take you from God? And this is where we get into this really kind of weird uh, theological dynamic where I think for some of us it's a little bit easier to understand, well, if I'm serving the Lord and then I'm persecuted, God's using that to conform me to the image of Christ, right? And even if you know, we live in a fallen world and sickness happens and death happens and there's this grief, that draws me into trusting the Lord. If I, if I allow it, I'll be drawn into trusting the Lord. But what is it really that we would be afraid of in our present or future keeping us from God? I think it's that one we talked about last, which is sin. It's a little bit harder for us to come to grips with the idea that God is going to use my sin to make me more like Jesus. Even when I'm sinning, God still loves me. Um, Even the worst thing that I could ever do is not going to separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, this is not an excuse to sin more. This is not an invitation to sin more. Because grace, if, if you think of grace as being forgiven of your sins, that's like, that's this part of grace. The rest of grace is the power to not have to sin anymore. Right? The part that we're all trying to do and none of us can do. Like we just can't get there. None of us can live the life we want to live. But in Christ, Christ can live the life we want to live through us. Right? That's the power of grace. So it's like this much of grace is for being forgiven. The rest of it's the power to live like Jesus. So it's not an excuse to sin more, but it is this powerful recognition that God is even using our sin to conform us into the image of his Son. All things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And these powers, I don't know what these powers are, we don't have enough context. The Bible uses the word powers in different ways. Powers could be angels. Powers could be demons. Powers could be government institutions. Powers can be societal, like systemic kind of uh, elements of society that, that come against us. Uh, usually, apart from angels, they're all negative, by the way. Like, so when I talk about government systems, usually when the Bible uses powers to refer to that, it's this corrupting power, right? You cannot... You cannot be corrupted in such a way. If you're living by faith and you love Jesus and you trust him for your salvation, you cannot be corrupted in such a way that God will not love you anymore. And I would argue that you probably can't be corrupted as much as I'd want to, right? Because of that other power of grace. And I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <coughs> you know, nothing in the heavens, nothing below, and nothing else in all of creation. Like, you are part of creation, right? But you cannot even get in the way of God loving you. It's a powerful, powerful statement. You know, I think... When you look at the broad church and you look at, there's a lot of these kind of theological issues that we can argue over. I mean, last couple of weeks we had to talk, had to, we got to, I guess, talk about predestination and like, okay, that can divide people. 
Well, this sounds like, well, what, can, can Christians lose their salvation? You know, or not. And I want to suggest to you that there's nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord. Is, is, it's not about, like, winning some theological argument. It's just like, man, I can trust in that. I can land on that, and I can stand firm on that. And whatever waves come and buffet, I can endure because of that. The knowledge that I cannot be taken away from the God who loves me. Now here's one more thing, and we're going to close. This God that we have... (coughs) shows us so much grace and love, right? So much that really, most of the time, we really don't even believe it. It's so good, we just don't believe it, right? And then what is our destiny, according to Romans eight twenty nine? To be conformed to the image of Christ. So what does that mean for us? And now, full circle, right where we started. How do we engage the world? Mm. If we're supposed to look like Jesus, then how are we supposed to treat one another? Well, we need to show up with crazy levels of love and grace for people. Crazy levels. The kind of love and grace that is shocking. Um, I know a lot of people don't like that song, Reckless Love. Oh, God's not reckless. God knows exactly what he's doing. And I just, you know, like I could take the song or or leave it. You know, like that's really not the issue. But I will, I cannot leave this. God is profoundly extravagant in his love. Profoundly extravagant. And you know that story of the prodigal son, right? Um, The reason he's called the prodigal, we think of the word prodigal. We think, oh, it means someone who leaves and comes back, right? That's not what the word prodigal means. He's a prodigal because he goes and he wastes his entire fortune on food and prostitutes. And you know the word prodigious, like an overabundance. Like he's a, he's a prodigious spender. <laughs> he, he spends so much that he spends himself into poverty and he's eating the pods that the pigs won't eat. Right? Even though he grew up in wealth. So the prodigal son, it's not about him returning. It's about how wantonly wasteful he is. But I love that book by Tim Keller about the prodigal God because God spends and expends himself extravagantly and I would say, and hear me out, wastefully for those he loves. I mean, you think about it. God sends his only son to die. And that sacrifice is enough to save every human being on the planet. And yet we know that narrow is the road or straight is the road and narrow is the gate. Most people don't trust Jesus. Most people don't get the benefit of that sacrifice. So if you think about it, like, there's so much wasted there. It's a wanton, uh, prodigious uh, uh, spending of God's greatest and most cherished resource, his own son. God is a reckless lover. And we're supposed to be like him. And that means when people do things 
that make you want to rip their face off, right? Because of God's grace for me, I then go to them in love and forgiveness. Uh, it does, and let me just say, it doesn't mean that you have to put yourself in danger of being hurt and harmed, right? I just want to make that clear. But it does mean that your attitude is the same as Christ Jesus. It does mean that your heart is the same as Christ Jesus. That no matter what happens, that, that there really is a possibility for you to love them again. And I just remember, I'm, I, I forgot to look it up, but do you remember the, the church shooting in Virginia? It was an African-American church. And a guy came into their Bible study, sat through the whole Bible study, and then started shooting people. Do you remember what happened when he went to court? And the people from that church came and they showered him with love and forgiveness. And there are other examples of that. I remember there was a story about an Amish community that did the same thing. For a, uh, There was a mass killing and they came and showered the murderer with love and forgiveness. I'm telling you, that is a reckless kind of loving. It is a, it is a shocking kind of loving. It's the kind of loving that's this kind of loving where no matter what you do, you're still at peace with God when you are a person who lives by faith. It's the kind of loving that no matter what happens, life, death, angels, demons, present, future, powers, height, depth, anything else, there's still love. And we do, again, we do this with wisdom. We do this in a way like we're not Jesus, right? We're not supposed to be dying on the cross for other people. We can't. It won't do anything for them, right? We read in our catechism, you need someone who's a God and a man, and you're only one, right? But that heart, that attitude, that perspective is the same. And so are we the kind of people that are showing up for those caught in sin or hurt or pain or grief? Like this, like what hope are we offering the suffering? And I think a lot of times people who have all sorts of struggles, they look to the church and they receive things like condemnation. They receive things like judgment. They receive things like rejection, right? What we should be offering is, hey, you know, number one, the love and grace of God. And then to, re- to encourage and remind them that in Christ, these things that they're struggling with actually lead to their maturity and their holiness. To remind them that what they're experiencing now is nothing compared to the glory they're going to experience in the coming age as they are truly and completely, finally transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. And they are co-heirs with him of all the blessings and honor. I mean, co-heirs means co-heirs, guys. Like, you, get, you receive everything that Jesus has coming to him. This is incredible. And then, as the body of Christ, being that community that can receive and support one another. And I don't know if you remember, but when we, very, when we started this way back earlier in the year, the very first sermon was a reminder that the whole theme of Romans, oh, where is it? Is to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. That's what Paul says in Romans 15. That's where we're going. 
Accept one another as Christ has accepted you. The reason he wrote this letter is the conflict they were experiencing. They were judging one another. They were thinking one was better than the other because of the way they lived out their faith. And Paul's saying, guys, you don't get it at all. None of you are better than anybody else. I don't care what you're doing because you're all sinners and you're all in Christ through faith. And that's it. It's the end of the story. And honestly, when we look out at the world that doesn't have faith in Christ, we can say the only difference between them and us is not that we're better than them. It's not that we're smarter than them. It's not that we're more righteous than them. There are, I have met people out there who are way better than people like you, right? The only difference is that God has received us through faith. It's the only difference. So there's no judgment. So my takeaway is this. God has poured out his grace on us, his love and his grace. Our fitting response is to pour out grace upon grace to others. So I think there's a lot here for each of us in our own, just our own journey with the Lord to, to understand and to trust in and that there's nothing that's going to keep us from the love of God. And then there's also that outward look Okay, there's that inward look that we all need and that outward look that says, okay, now I want to extend the same thing to the people around me. And both the inward and the outward are vitally important and they feed into one another. Because I'm going to tell you, if you're giving grace to others, it's really hard then not to give grace to yourself. And if you're giving grace to yourself, let me rephrase that. If you're not giving grace to yourself, it's going to be hard to give grace to others. And so it really, like, you really do want both. And sometimes the reason that we can't be received in grace is that we have this um, unforgiveness and we have this bitterness and resentment towards others, and God's saying, let it go. And then sometimes when we do that, we actually find that we begin to forgive and release the bitterness we hold against ourselves. I mean, it's this powerful cycle. So that's the encouragement I give you, church, is to understand even more fully and then live in more fully the grace of God as you are conformed in the image of Christ so that you do the same thing for others. Amen? Well, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to give you just a, um, 90 seconds just to reflect and think, Lord, what do you want me? Just ask him right now. What do you want me to do with this? Is there a person I need to reach out to? Is there something in myself I need to deal with? Is there something between us? Like, whatever it is. God, what do you want me to do in response to this message? And then I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to close out with a song.